Welcome to another episode of Political Entertaining. I'm your host, Frank, along here with Byron. Uh, Byron, um, let's get the listeners uh, started. You know, we're a political show. Some people don't know what we're about. Go ahead and tell them what we're about and get anything off your chest that you need to. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. We break down news and politics. For those of you that, you know, may not follow it on a day-to-day basis, we got you, man. Just tune in to us once a week, and we'll try to tell you what's important and also what you need to know. You can like us on Facebook, Politically Entertaining, as well as Instagram. We're also on Twitter at The Vocal Minority. That's D-A-V-O-C-A-L, Minority. And we'll have a YouTube channel coming soon, so stay tuned for that. Frank, before we get into politics, man, because, you know, politics is one of those things that start arguments quicker than anything Mm -hmm. else. But besides politics and religion, it is one other thing that is a guaranteed argument starter. You know what it is? No, I have no idea. (laughs) Naming naming who are the top five rappers of all time. That will get (laughs) – man, you could be in a barbershop, a work break room, Man, if if church service hadn't started yet, you might get an argument in 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 the choir in the choir. I mean, it's some about naming the top five rappers of all time that get people going. So that's why I'm going to let you name who the top five greatest, so that people can be mad at you. Ooh, <laughs> well that 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 is that's rough because ah. Uh. You know, I'll be honest, I don't even, I'm, and this is not a disclaimer, I don't even listen to to new rap. Whatever these things that come on, I know I know some of the names I hear, like, you know, I hear Kevin Gates, the Young Thug. I don't even listen to those guys. I mean, I know who they are just from timeline stuff, but I don't even listen to that. So my stuff is a little bit older. Um, so I'm just going to rattle off my list. I'm just going to rattle off my list. Um, this is in no particular order because I, I don't even believe in trying to order a top five. I just It's just difficult. But I'm going to go with Biggie, Pac, uh, Jay Z, Andre 3000, and LL Cool J. Those are my uh, top five rappers, and and I know there might be some better rappers. And some people say, oh, what about Rakim or whatever? But I, you know, I'll be honest, I don't, I hadn't listened to some of these guys as much. These are guys that I listened to, uh, you know, when I was listening to rap, and, and they formed my opinion on different things. So those are the five that I got. Again, Biggie, Pac, Andre 3000, Jay Z, and LL Cool J. Those are my top five. That's a that's a solid list, man. I um. I actually have learned over time to just stay away from the conversation because it always ends up in a heated argument. So what I usually do is just tell people I'll give you my favorite top five. They're not necessarily the greatest, so that's how I avoid it. But for this show, you know, I brought up the question. So I'll just say this. This isn't necessarily who I think are the top five of all time, but when the conversation comes up, these are the five that I hear the most. Jay-Z, Big, Tupac, Scarface, and Nas. Not saying you have to agree with that or disagree, but those are the five I hear. And I like that you named LL Cool J because I know I know some people probably scratch their head at that, but you got to think about it. Rap is a fickle industry, so for him to last from the '80s until I would say the early 2000s, name how many other rappers have done that. So if you're scratching your head thinking, you know, why in the world would Frank say LL Cool J? You know, think about that for a second. Plus. LL Cool J in the '80s and early '90s, man, he he was pretty hard. I, I I think I think people, yeah. One thing about LL is his his lyrics. He never turned into a gangster rapper. He was LL Cool J. He just said, you know, Mama said knock you out, but he never. He was LL. He was always LL. Even even in 2000, uh, you know, when he had different songs coming out, um, and he wasn't necessarily as popular, but he still had hits. He was always LL. He maintained his personality. He never changed. He was still had a fan base. Still very consistent. Ladies still love him. Uh, I actually went to a funk fest uh, a couple of years ago, uh, where where actually Outkast was, and he was uh, the closing act on the second night. So he's still very popular, and he still has a lot of great songs. So I don't see how anybody could ever say anything negative against LL. Like the list, hate the list. We invite your participation. Go to our Facebook page politically entertaining or you can go to our website politicallyentertaining.com tell us what your top five are tell us how bad or how great our list was but for now let's get into some politics
two, politically entertaining. Your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now, your host, Frank and Byron. We've got a lot to cover today, Frank. Uh, I want the people to know you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Also, you can download the Stitcher app or Podbeam app. Search Politically Entertaining and subscribe to the show. Um, We got a beef that some of you may not know about between the Baltimore, Washington area and the Gulf Coast. We'll talk about that later. We also have an interview with Michelle Turner, Keisha Lovich, coming up. She is the owner of Your Two Left Feet, so stay tuned for that. Right now, Frank, uh, the big news I would say this week was, uh, you know, the terrorist attack in Brussels. This was like a couple of days after they caught one of the remaining suspects of the Paris bombing from back in November, I believe it was. So the, the talk on the news lately has been, you know, terrorists and being vigilant. Just wanted to get your, your, you know, your thoughts on that concerning, you know, terrorism and, you know, how, how safe this country is and any other thoughts you may have on it. Wow, man, you know, such a loaded question. Anytime these attacks happen, you know, people get more and more afraid of of what could happen here, certainly in America, and certainly, you know, Paris, now Brussels. People people are starting to wonder, you know, is, is it just a matter of time before it happens? You know, and, and I kind of believe that it is just a matter of time because I don't necessarily believe that I know there's different people. Uh, Ted Cruz came out and got slammed for saying, "Let's we need to start policing the, the Muslim communities and not them be radicalized." I don't think ISIS. ISIS is not even to me. It's 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 a movement that goes beyond the the, the Muslim religion or I mean, excuse me, uh, you know, Islam or anything like that. It's it's people basically that have decided to turn to hate among. Um, you know, they have no real agenda. They just want to destroy anything and everything that that is good and they use you know they hide behind the quran to say okay yeah, this is why i'm doing it but they don't have any real reason to do these things other than sheer hate sheer evil and i think that that exists everywhere in this country i think you've seen acts of evil happen i think you've seen san bernardino that was a you know terrible act and so to me there's it's very difficult to stop it's very difficult to, to police it obviously you we want to go after isis anywhere we know they are but the scary part is ISIS is not a centralized target, and I think that it's, it's one of those things that's going to be very difficult to stop, but we all have to be vigilant, and people have to quit uh, you know, blaming Syrian refugees or blaming one group. It's a movement of people that have become disillusioned with life, and they feel like the only way they can be redeemed or the only way they can get some redemption is to basically hurt other people. And that's a different type of enemy than we've had before. You know, going back, obviously, uh, you know, the previous wars, there's always been a target, you know, a person who was leading it, a person in charge of it. Nobody, if you, if you, somebody, if you ask somebody, even somebody well-educated on politics and, and foreign policy, you say, who is, who are the guys in ISIS? They'll say, they may give you a guy's name, but there is so many different cells, so many different factions of it that you can't just say, okay, we got this one guy, it's over. Uh, yeah. So so I just I just kind of think it's, it's a difficult thing to deal with, and we just got to be vigilant and, and be praying because it's it's a very scary thing. We uh, we got some breaking news. By the time this podcast is released, it won't be as breaking, but right now I uh, just want to let the listeners know, North Korea just released a video threatening to uh, bomb what release a nuclear bomb on D.C. in particular in America. Um, I just posted the article on our Facebook page, so visit uh, Politically Entertaining on Facebook if you want to read up more on that. I have not read it, so we won't get into it on this show. I like to be informed when we talk about, when we talk about things, but just wanted to let the listeners know. But uh, to finish up, you know, your point, Frank, on, on Brussels and, and Paris, I think you pretty much covered everything by them not being, you know, centralized. What what frustrates me the most is the blame game we play here in America. When there's a terrorist attack, you got uh, Mayor Giuliani, or former Mayor Giuliani, saying that ISIS was pretty much um, the cause of Clinton, and it's, it's their fault. Uh, you naturally you always have the, the the Republican side criticizing what Obama should have done or what he should be doing more of or less of, and we just get that blame game, you know, 
for me, just blame the terrorists. Like that that's that's who's doing this stuff. I mean, yeah, you can you can say there are better things that we should do, but when you pretty much say it's this person's fault or that person's fault that this happened, yeah, I just get kind of sick of hearing that from time to time. And let's just focus more on solutions instead of blaming the president or blaming this senator or this congressman whenever a terrorist attack happens. Uh, it's not going anywhere. It's something that we've been dealing with for a while. And we, like you say, we just got to stay vigilant. We got to do the best we can to be prepared for it and um, just try to stop it when we can. We actually do stop a lot of plans from happening, but it doesn't get as much attention because nothing happens. Um, there was a great article that I read, Frank, and it was titled um, Prison Gerrymandering. And what's going on with this, I want to let the listeners know, there's a county in Florida, Jefferson County. Um, they just got ruled in court. The judge ruled it unconstitutional. And here's what they were trying to do. It's a very small county, and what they were trying to do was count the prisoners in that county as, like, um, part of the uh, population, even though they couldn't vote. And it was trying to um, – they were trying to expand, I guess, the numbers in the county, which would be a bad thing for the citizens there because, you know, the smaller the county is, you know, the more the, the, their state legislator or, you know, county executive, whatever, can focus on their problems and stuff. So the judge ruled that unconstitutional. But, Frank, I wanted to use that article to transition into gerrymandering is going on nationwide. I'm not sure how many people are aware, but in the House of Representatives particularly, you know, it's a Republican Congress. But for the last two elections, the Democrats have actually gotten the majority of the votes. But what happens is if they redistrict these uh, different counties and districts in each state and they make it to where it's more advantageous right now for the Republican Party, to win these different house seats. And, you know, a theme that we talk about a lot on here, Frank, is how elections matter. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe governors and state legislators, they have a big say in how each state and county is redistricted. So I, I just want the listeners to know that's something to keep in mind with gerrymandering. And it's, you know, I hate to say anything is cheating, but in a way it's almost, you know, cheating the way, like how can you explain a party getting more votes than the other party, yet the other party is in control of pretty much a branching government. I wanted to get your, your your thoughts on that, man. Well, you know, it's interesting that the gerrymandering, you know, obviously, um, you know, as you explained it very well, the people who don't know the term, I, you know, I'm not, you know, I've heard the term in the past, I'm not super familiar with it, um, but but from from just just understanding what it means, gerrymandering has actually been happening for any number of years. It just it just had a different name, right? So go back and look and say the Voting Rights Act that was gerrymandering, except it was very obvious because they were saying, oh, black people, uh, you know, minorities can't vote, and and so they were keeping people out. That was very easy, right? So then now that it's easier for all people to vote, you know, 50 years later after civil rights, and everybody has the right to vote. Well, how can you gain an advantage now that you've got all these other people coming into the system voting that weren't voting 50 years ago? See, 50 years ago, there was no need to repurpose a district because you had all these people in the South, all these disenfranchised Negroes that they weren't part of the system. So there's no need to, you know, to worry about that. But now everybody can vote. Everybody's part of the system. So you've got to gain an advantage. How do you do that? Like you said, redrawing the map to make certain counties, you know, basically be beneficial even though less votes are coming in. So, I mean, I think it's a very dangerous game uh, that, that they're playing, but they played it before. It's just it's just a little maybe more – it's more sinister now because people don't necessarily understand gerrymandering and they don't understand how it, it works. Maybe people understood discriminating against a whole group of people not allowing them to vote, but now that, you know, they're kind of saying, oh, well, your vote counts, but it doesn't really count as much. That's still, you know, tampering with people's vote, and I think that – you know, that's something that has not been talked about enough. And, you know, people think it's a conspiracy theory, but it's really not. It's actually happening, uh, you know, as we, as we you know, go through life and vote. And it's not really getting, getting enough attention, in my opinion, because it shouldn't be anything where 
it should never be drawn to like you said where one one candidate is getting more votes but still not winning that doesn't it just doesn't make sense i do want to be fair uh, if i'm not mistaken you know this is something that you know the democrats have done before also uh and if i i'm going to try to give the people a great example let's say you have a county of 5,000 minorities, like a big voting block that votes Democrat, it's 5,000 of them. What gerrymandering does is they will split up that 5,000. So by the time they're re- redrawing the districts of that county or state, that 5,000 turns into 1,000 in County A, another 1,500 in County B, another 1,000 in County C. They're all split up and they're in different districts. So if they're if that smaller number of minorities are put in with a a group of say Republican leaning voters, then now you know how they how they vote is now moot. It's been silenced in a way, and that's pretty much what gerrymandering does. I, I really hope people understood that, but that that's just, that's just to give you an idea of why I call it somewhat cheating. It's it's pretty much taking a block of voters, and if if you're the opposite party that those voters vote for, you split them up to where they're not as meaningful. Um, <clears throat> again, I want to let people know we have a great interview uh, with Michelle Keisha Lovish coming up. Uh, also, again, please remember to subscribe to Politically Entertaining. We're on iTunes, we're on Podbean app, and we're also on the Stitcher app as well. And we're going to also get into <laughs> a Baltimore-Washington area beef with with the Gulf Coast, you know, the Gulf Coast, New Orleans, Mobile, Mississippi, all those states. There is a beef that many of you may not know about. Me and Frank will discuss it later. Frank, there was an article that came out uh, earlier this week. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she is the chairman of the DNC, the Democratic National Party, and she was asked, you know, about the allegations of the, the party pretty much favoring Hillary Clinton. And this is something that drives the uh, the Bernie Sanders voters crazy because they definitely feel that way. And apparently he feels that way because he actually has a pending lawsuit against the DNC. Um, he had to Thursday to decide whether he wanted to drop it. He filed it back in December, I believe. And he said, no, you know, we're going to continue to talk to the DNC and hopefully we'll drop it. But we want to make sure we get a fair shake. And he's suing the DNC because um, – for a, a short period of time, they shut down his um, his campaign's voter data access, and they feel like they missed out on a lot of information on that. And so, do you do you think um, do you think this is something that is that could be possibly true, or just in the mind of of, of the Bernie Sanders Bernie Sanders campaign? What do you what are your thoughts on this whole development of? of him beefing with his own party in a sense. I mean, I think it's difficult to to really know because it's been a very contentious relationship at best well, with Bernie Sanders and, and the DNC because it just seems from the beginning, from the outside looking in, Hillary's been their, their guy or, you know, their girl, you know, so to speak. And right. Bernie's just been kind of hanging out with, you know, his, you know, Promises that sound really good, but probably not able to be implemented in in, in a really um, efficient scenario from the federal government level. So I don't think the DNC wants anything to do with Bernie Sanders. I think that they know that somebody with, who's as left-leaning as he is, is is hardly electable in the general electorate. And the Democrats, just like the Republicans, are all about winning elections, which is why the Republicans don't want Donald Trump. Right, because they don't think he's electable, and I think the same thing about Bernie Sanders. I think that Democrats are like, uh, yeah, okay, Bernie. Yeah, Bernie is not nearly as polarizing as Trump or anything like that. But let's put it like this: he is as he's he's as opposite, you know, Clinton as Trump is the other Republican candidate. So, you know, I think that the DNC wants the establishment candidate, which is Hillary. Hillary is, you know, has a lot of experience. I mean, she's got more experience than anybody I can remember in recent memory running for, for office, you know, not just a former first lady, but, you know, um, her time in New York um, and also 
Secretary of State. Secretary of State, right, I'm losing that one. Trans- I was just like, she has a, a boatload of experience. So she's the guy, she's the girl, I keep, you know, I'm not being sexist, but she's, she's, a, she's the person that the DNC wants. And whether or not she can win the general election, I don't necessarily know, but I think they feel like because she's more favorable than Bernie, they're just pretty much giving Bernie the, the shaft. And Bernie might have a point, but I think whatever Bernie's doing, he should drop his lawsuit because a lawsuit is not going to win him the nomination. He's not going to, you know, just like the recount didn't win Al Gore the election, a lawsuit ain't going to get you the nomination, Bernie. So go out there and try to get you some more delegates and do what you can, but drop the lawsuit. I don't think that's going to, you know, reveal anything and be like, yeah, you know what, Bernie's going to be the nominee that he won the lawsuit. I mean, I don't see that being any any positive outcome for him regardless of what the, the decision is. Speaking of getting uh, more delegates, as we record this, he, he had some huge victories tonight in Washington and Alaska. He was won by a margin of like 80-20 and 75-25. Those are percentages. And many are speculating that he'll win Hawaii as well. To me, and I know, you know, for the last few shows, you pretty much, I think the viewers would probably agree that you, in your mind, it's kind of over for Sanders, and it may be more because it's definitely headed that way despite these big victories. But this contest between him and Hillary, it reminds me a lot of this, the most recent uh, Carolina-Seattle game. Um, I think, was it the NFC champion? It wasn't the NFC championship. Divi- divisional, divisional round. Yeah, the divisional round. Remember how Carolina got out to that huge lead? Yep. And, you know, at halftime it was like, oh, this is over, this is over. And Seattle kind of gave them a scare at the end where they were coming back and, you know, they had to put one or two more plays together. They probably could have pulled off a uh, a huge uh, comeback from behind win. That's kind of how this race between Hillary and Bernie is. It's like she can't quite give him that death blow. Like, yeah, she's had him down where she's won this state or that state, but as soon as you think he's down, he comes back and he wins a Alaska or a um, – or a uh, Washington State, and he he just won't go away. And on top of that, he has the money. Like he has the money to continue on. So I still was, don't was, think he. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, that was funny. That was a great sports analogy. But I'm gonna give you another sports analogy you'll even like better. Here's who Hillary Clinton is. She's 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 the 2012-2013 Heat, and she may lose but she never lost two in a row. You know, it's that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a contest. At the end of the day, she's got home court advantage. She's going to win in seven. It doesn't matter. You know, that's, that's kind of why I, how I feel. Like, I totally understand the analogy with Bernie coming back. But it's pretty much the same thing. At the end of the day, Hillary's going to win it. Um, unless something else comes out, obviously, some bombshell. But I think the email thing is over. The Benghazi thing is over. She's, She's, you know as scandal-free as, as 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 she can be at this point. Yeah, um, I, I, I tend to agree. Uh, she just, people just don't seem that excited about her, but for whatever reason, I, I think people feel like she can win, and that's what are driving voters to go to her. <clears throat> we have, uh, again, I, I mentioned this earlier, we're about to get into this interview. You guys are going to really like this interview. This woman is very uh, knowledgeable. I love how she articulates her points. Uh, again, she is the owner of Your Two Left Feet. And as you will find out, she is my co-host's sister. So check it out, and we'll give you our thoughts on the other side. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Today's guest is a very special guest. She is the owner of Your Two Left Feet, a dance studio down in Coral Springs, Florida. You can visit yourtwoleftfeet.com for more information on that. We have with us Michelle Turner, Keisha Lovich, and she is also the sister of my co-host, Frank Turner. Michelle, how are you doing today, ma'am? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to thank you for making the time for us today. Of course. All right. Well, you have been, um, I read up on you, and I didn't cheat and ask Frank for any answers. I actually did my own uh, research, if you will. He's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, you've been dancing since you were five years old. Uh, my question for you is what, what drew you to dancing and what made you stick with it? Because pretty much, you know, all kids at a young age, you know, they dance around the house or whatever the case may be. But what, made, what really drew you to it? Was it a particular artist or something you saw on TV? And what made you stick with it? Wow, that's an excellent question. Um, originally, you know, if I'm trying to remember as far back as I can, uh, I think it was my uh, older sister who wanted to dance, and I really wanted to do everything that she did. But uh, the real thing that it inspired me a little bit later, um, I think I was about, I don't know, maybe six at this point. Uh, we used to have someone who came over to babysit us. I'll never forget her name was Mrs. Smith. And she was obsessed with the movie The Sound of Music. And uh, when I first started watching it, I was kind of bored. It starts with, you know, Fraulein Maria singing in the hills. But then the children come in, you know, and they're singing and dancing. And after I saw that, I was just hooked. I wanted to see everything, you know, Annie. Um, I was just in, enti- enticed by these kids who could sing and dance. It was just amazing to me. So after I saw that, I was all in, and it's been that way ever since. You, you and my wife would get along so well. The sound of music, <laughs> I've never seen it, but I, I do know it has the do, re, mi, whatever. Also, Latino, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so you guys would get along great. Um, again, we have Michelle Keisha Lovish with us, and, again, you can visit her website, your2leftfeet.com. That's your with the number two leftfeet.com. Um, can anyone come into your studio? Um, like, is there anyone that can come in there and there's no hope for them whatsoever, or do you feel like you can help anybody that comes into your studio and wants to learn how to dance? Uh, well, to borrow a line from Fred Astaire, uh, he was famous for saying, uh, if you can walk, you can dance. And the uh, truth of the matter is anyone could be trained to dance. I've actually worked with someone with the prosthetic leg before, um, and they were able to dance as well. Maybe not every single type of dance, but I would say anyone can learn to dance. Uh, anyone can also learn rhythm, you know, because that's one of the biggest hang-ups for people. They say, I can't hear music, or, you know, that really has to do with counting. So if you can count, um, then you can learn how to hear rhythm with music and therefore, you know, put uh, moves to the beats of music. So everyone has a shot. No one's hopeless. Okay. So I may or may not have been asking that for myself. Uh, (laughs) I'll keep that to myself. I'm not the most uh, rhythm person that you've ever met, which um, (laughs) it's it's hard for me to explain why my wife is with me because, like you, she loves to dance, and I don't. Um, Now, you also are very much into politics as well, correct? I am. Okay. Well, that that's convenient for us because we, as you know, are a political show. And I wanted your opinion. I know you're down there in the Miami area, correct? Close. Yes, I am. Okay. Well, with um, you know, this past week we had the president. He made his trip down to uh, Cuba, and even ESPN they took some of their crew to cover the baseball game. And for a lot of people in America, you know. They look at it as a good thing. They don't even really understand why we still have an embargo against Cuba. You down there in uh, Miami, you know, Calle Ocho down there. It's a lot. Of, it's a heavy Cuban population down there. Have you ever been? Have you been able to get a um, a sense of how they may feel in contrast to how a lot of other Americans feel as far as, far as uh, a celebratory occasion? Uh, yes, actually, that's an excellent question. It's really mixed, um, and I think some of it is generational. You have uh, the younger uh, people whose parents, let's say, have immigrated over from uh, Cuba, and um, they, you know, they're very Americanized. Uh, sometimes they're not even speaking Spanish, and they see President Obama's trip over as, you know, a way of healing old wounds and step, you know, step into the future. But if you speak to the parents and the grandparents. Um, they still have so much resentment. And not unju- it's not unjustified, but there is a lot of resentment from the way they were treated and 
to them it's almost like uh, ripping open an old wound. Um, you know, what, from their perspective, they see the president going over and, you know, making amends and reparations with some, for, for acts that they feel are unforgivable. You know, a good example I can give is um, when I was in high school, and this may seem a little bit off track, but I promise I'll make the point. Uh, okay. You know, I was a cheerleader, and I had some difficulties with the girls in the squad. And I remember uh, my mom, who, you know, I'm from Alabama, and she had gone to the store of one of the girls I cheered with. They had their own shop, and she told me about it, and she had been rather friendly than them and with them, and I was offended. And maybe it wasn't uh, – I shouldn't have been, but – you know, I was just a little bit offended because I was still carrying that hurt from years ago, um, you know, with instances that occurred when I was a teenager. So when, you know, I've spoken to people who have actually come to my studio and that sort of thing has come up, and that's the sort of thing I've been hearing, people that it's very hard for them to get over the mistreatment and uh, the situations that were happening in Cuba. That's why they came here and made that sacrifice and took those risks and brought the children over. So there's even some disconnect with the families that, you know, they feel the children don't understand what they went through. And uh, they also sometimes feel, not everyone, but a lot of the older Cuban uh, community is feeling that the president isn't understanding, um, you know, what it is to actually go back to Cuba and open the doors again. That's the exact sense that I've gotten from, uh, you know, just overhearing some some Cuban-Americans talk about it. And like you say, it does seem to be generational where the divide comes in, where older Cubans who remember what this regime has done, and they they haven't apologized for it. Uh, I think, uh, what's his name, Raul Castro, I think he was even asked a question about it, and he kind of somewhat jokingly denied it. And so they don't forget that. And we have some people that are trying to compare it to, hey, well, we're friends with Germany now. The difference is Hitler isn't still in charge. Like, it's a completely different leadership there. And Cuba is still the Castro. So I, I think that was a, a great answer by you. Um, I'm not going to completely hog the interview. I guess I'll let you talk to your your brother and see what he has for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Byron. I was getting I was getting nervous over here. I was like, man, we're gonna run out of time, and I'm not gonna say anything. Um, and, it's, and it's ironic because I'm probably the most long-winded person on on the on the line right now. But I'll try to uh, direct this question at you, Michelle. Very, and you can answer it very succinctly. You're a black, you know, female entrepreneur. Obviously, uh, you know, you have your own business, you have your own dance studio. It's interesting, you know, we talked about this on, on shows in the past, and you can listen to this show or any other, or any other show on iTunes. Just go there and uh, type in Politically Entertaining. You can listen to the show there. But we've talked about this in the past about voting patterns among black people. And I know we, we, we kind of said, okay, a lot of people, black people vote Democrat for a number of reasons. And, you know, I kind of saying, okay, all these black female entrepreneurs coming up, are they still, you know, do you feel like that's, they should still be voting Democrat, or do you feel like there's a change of how people are voting based on how you're living? Because you're not just, you know, the typical mindset for, say, the conservative on black people is, okay, there's these black people over here, the 47% that Mitt Romney was talking about, that just want to get her hand out. But the new wave of black female entrepreneurs that we've, you know, that we see, that we have featured on, on, on our show, Politically Entertaining, suggests that, you know, black women are more than capable of, of getting going out and getting their own. So should the Democrats be pledged our, our vote, or is there a difference in ideology based on the entrepreneurial spirit that you have? Well, that's another really good question. Um, well, I guess let me put it like this. Um, the problem, or I don't want to say the problem, but the perspective, I think, of so many people in general, uh, once you own a business, changes because there's so much responsibility, and that opens your mind. Uh, so what I discovered personally, and I can't speak for everyone else, is that uh, there are some deep infrastructure problems with both parties, and I'm a registered Democrat. Um, and the main issue is, and I think the reason people such as Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders are gaining so much traction is that uh, neither party has uh, 
a real system in place for truly helping the working man or, in my case, woman. Um, so it it is hard to be very far left or very far right um, at this time. And I think that's why uh, we've seen so many things like, you know, you see the Tea Party uh, spring up and, um, you know, Bernie Sanders is labeled as a progressive, you know, while uh, Hillary Clinton is, I would say, more of um, a conservative Democrat, if you will. Uh, as far as, you know, voting is concerned, I mean, I've paid so much attention, especially becoming, since becoming a business owner, to things that are going on politically because they really do affect uh, a business person. You know, if the economy is down, that means businesses. And so, on, you know, there are some things on the Republican side that make sense, you know, as far as uh, things that may help you as a business owner. And then there are other things on the Democratic side that help, I think, um, more in a, an everyday life kind of situation. The problem is there really isn't a clear focus or plan to bring those two things together. So that's why people are so angry, because um, you're kind of forced in this country to, you know, choose a side and stick with it. And just like anything else, I mean, it's going to have good and bad. But regardless of that, we're not really moving forward as a country and as individuals. Um, and that's why someone like Mr. Trump can, you know, say the things he says, no matter how inflammatory, and still have followers because he's striking a chord with people who feel like they're getting nowhere. They're working hard. They're not being able to do anything. And same with Bernie Sanders. You know, he's striking the chord and getting people, you know, that you shouldn't have to be suffering and swimming in college debt for years and years after you've finished schooling, et cetera, et cetera. So as far as, you know, being a business owner and whether or not uh, just going for the Democratic vote, I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think it's a tough uh, thing to to really answer. It's so black and white as it used to be. You know, there are a lot – there's a lot of mid-ground. And um, what I'm hearing, because I know the, the public running a public business – is that people are really hung as to who to vote for. They don't know who to vote for. Nobody seems to be extremely uh, excited, at least the circle of people that I'm dealing with, uh, for some of these candidates in the presidential election. You know, and it's a really sad thing, unfortunately. I, I read a report that said if the nominees are Trump and Clinton, to your point, that it could be probably the lowest turnout in years for an election. So that that is a great point. I meant to mention at the top of the interview that I'm jealous of where you live. I love visiting <laughs> down in the in the Miami area. Uh, I try to get down there as much as possible. Um, so so you're in Florida, which I call one of the probably one of the two most important states in the general election. You guys in Ohio. Um, I wanted to know. We we both agree that Trump is a phenomenon this year. But despite <laughs> despite that, Cruz was able to win his state in Texas. Kasich was able to win Ohio. Rubio got blown out in Florida. Now, you being down there in Florida, do you have, uh, I guess, an opinion or an idea on why he wasn't able to carry his state as opposed to the other two guys? Sure. He wasn't able to carry his own state just because, uh, he really didn't commit to what he stood for. You know, one of the best examples, I know we've heard it mentioned uh, time and time again, was the Gang of Eight bill. You know, he did introduce it. He actually has some pretty important people back it, including Governor Bush. And once he got under fire for it, he straddled the fence. He backed away. Wrong thing to do, especially being such a young uh, person in the Senate and, you know, not having – a strong record, um, you know, on his resume. I mean, that was one of the worst moves he could make. Now, some people will say that when he got into the mud, so to speak, with Donald Trump, that's when things started to go south for him. But it's not true. He hadn't won anything before that happened. And I actually think um, he should have done that sooner. He should have called Trump to task long ago if he wanted to make any difference with it. It was just too little, too late. It ended up kind of, uh, I think, 
putting him in the position of almost being like uh, a whiny child, like now he's going to go after him. But he had already painted himself into a corner. So this is why he didn't win Florida. Um, the other scary thing to note is that most of the people that were going to vote for Rubio are now going to vote for Trump. That's the worst result of him dropping. Wow. I didn't – now, that I did not know. That's, uh, that's interesting right there. Um, I actually had one more question for you on your studio, but I, I did want to give Frank an opportunity. I didn't know if he had another question or not before I got to it. No, I, I actually do have one question. It's a quick one. Do you think it matters who is president in 2016 in regards to your business? Do you feel like, you know, regardless of what people say about Trump or what they say about Clinton or Sanders or whoever, do you think that 2016 November versus and then you go into, you know, 2020 November, will your business be different in four years uh, based on who is elected this November? Wow. Absolutely. Um, because it's it is a great question. Uh, if the person who's elected cannot turn the economy around, that is going to be a huge impact, especially on a business like mine. And I say especially because, um, you know, any business is always subject to possibly failing, but something like what I do, which is ballroom dance, I only work with adults, you know, very rarely teens, but mainly adults. It's, um, you know, like an elective. It's extracurricular. It's not a necessity. So with that being said, those sort of things, if the economy is down, they're the first to go. Uh, so it is very important that whoever's elected to office really have a strong plan for the economy and it turn around, because if they don't, I think there are going to be a lot of businesses suffering, uh, you know, if we get somebody in the White House who has poor judgment. Okay. Well, we're going to get you out of here on a, a lighter note. And, again, we're talking to Michelle Turner, Keisha Lovett. She is the owner of Your Two Left Feet, located in Coral Springs, Florida. Um, Michelle, my wife, she loves, uh, I told you she loves dance. And mm-hmm. two of her favorite shows is uh, Dancing Dolls and the other show with Abby, um, Dance Mom, I believe it is. Yeah, Dancing Dolls and Dance Mom. And both instructors, uh, they do a lot of yelling and all of that stuff. Now, I know you don't teach kids. I just I just was curious, what type of instructor are you? Do you yell to get your point across or are you calm or do you employ both styles in order to teach your uh your students? Generally, neither. I'm actually uh, a very cheerful instructor, so I uh, believe in giving off a lot of positive energy. Um, and to that point, when I worked for Fred Astaire Dance, I remember uh, they have a lot of um, uh, of their teachers coming over from Europe, and, uh, you know, jokingly, they would tell me that they had to be trained out of their normal European style of teaching, which would be more strict, more yelling. A great example of that is watching uh, American coaches during the Olympics versus, you know, you might see a Russian coach who seems more firm or what have you. What I found when I'm teaching dance is the more relaxed and happy a student is, the better they can receive my instruction. Because if I'm yelling or if I'm too calm and not giving them that energy, it's not going to translate as well. So, that's what I do. <laughs> gotcha. We want to thank you for making your time for Politically Entertainer. Happy to be here. And are you are you on Twitter or Instagram, the, the social media? You, did you want to put that out there? Uh, well, absolutely. Um, of course, to get more information uh, about my dance studio, you can go to Your2, and that is the number 2, uh, com. Um, Twitter, you can find me the same way. Uh, not on Instagram yet. No, I need to get there, but um, also on Facebook. Uh, that URL is the way to go. So um, I'm so happy that I was able to join in and talk to you two this evening. We enjoyed it as well. Our third entrepreneur, um, black female entrepreneur at that, so we really enjoyed it. Frank, thank you for allow me to interview your sister, brother. You did a great job, man. It was awesome. Miss <laughs> Michelle, you take care, and thank you again. Thank you. Good night. Frank, how-
how did you how did your big sister do, man? She did. It was amazing, man. I I, I really was proud of her. Uh, you know, I was like, wow, this is my sister. I didn't know she even was that. <laughs> that you know, I was like, oh my god. You know, we grew up fighting and stuff like that. You know, it's, we're only two and a half years apart. Uh, but you know, we we have a great relationship, and I'm glad she was able to come on the show. I'm glad that we were able to have an interview that just wasn't not just focused on obviously our you know our relationship. It was just based on her being an entrepreneur and understanding the how politics affect her as a business owner. And I feel like as a running thing we've had on this show, which is which is done you've done great with getting different guests on with this, is the black female entrepreneur is totally underrepresented in America in general, but you know they're out there and they are really putting in work and so it's it's amazing and we just like I said like I said listen to that interview and and just get inspiration whether or not you're a female or black whatever there's just just inspiration we want you to be getting from these different interviews with people and certainly most certainly the people who are entrepreneurs and doing big things you know I just want to piggyback on that man uh Michelle if you're listening first off thank you for making time for us really enjoyed the interview uh, as I said during the interview, she was our fifth interview on Politically Entertaining, our third black female entrepreneur. So that that's a big deal for me. I really, you know, ever since reading that article that we mentioned uh, with, with with the first interview we had with Erica Perkins, uh, it's, it's been a big deal to me because those numbers really did grab my attention on how black females are the fastest entrepreneurs, yet they're they're the they're the least invested in. And so anytime we can bring attention to black female entrepreneurs, I'm all for it. Uh, it certainly helped that she's your sister, but even if she wasn't your sister, man, you know, the way she articulated her points in those questions and stuff, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I want to remind the listeners that you can catch all five of the interviews we've done. Uh, just subscribe on iTunes. If you don't have an Apple device, download the Podbean app or Stitcher app. Subscribe to Political Entertainment. You can catch our interview with Erica Perkins, Terry Matthews, DeRay McKesson, Dr. Claiborne Carson of uh, Stanford University, and this one that we just did with Michelle Keisha Lovich. And, again, thank you for joining us. We will get into the Gulf Coast, Baltimore, Washington beef in a second, uh, but I did want to talk to Frank real quick. We mentioned it in the interview with your sister. You know, Obama went to Cuba. And for a lot of Americans, like I said earlier, it was celebratory but not good for all. And <clears throat> what, what what fascinates me is, you know, how people automatically try to say, it's like we sometimes people are so ready to ignore other people's pain. So when you bring up the point that, you know, hey, not all Cubans are happy about this, well, we, we, we cool with Germany and, you don't see, you know, Jewish people having a problem with us being cool with Germany. Yeah, because Hitler is not in control of Germany. So it just would be nice if people would not be so dismissive of, of real pain and really try to empathize with the other side. I'm not saying what Obama did was wrong or right. In my opinion, though, I do think that Cuba should earn it. And I don't think they've done anything to really earn it. It's the same regime in charge, you know, Fidel Castro's brother, uh, Raul Castro is in charge, and they haven't done anything, you know, to to change the the, the way that they uh, dictate and rule down there. Now, what I don't want to do is speak on something that I may not know, and by that I mean, Frank, like, you remember um, before Os- Osama bin Laden was killed, they had that um, what they once a year they have that press dinner at the White House. And, you know, Obama was there. He was telling jokes and stuff. And, like, I want to say a day or two later, bin Laden was killed. And if you looked at Obama's demeanor that night, you had no idea that that plan was in effect. Like, you want to talk about a poker face. I mean, nobody had the slightest idea. And I say that to say that, hey, for all I know, uh, the, the Castro regime could have given him some things that they plan on doing as far as changing. I don't know. So if that's the case, then fine. But if not, I do think that, you know, they should they should do something to earn, you know, America coming down there and us ending the embargo. Um, like I say, I know we talked about it a little bit with your sister, but I want to know if you had any other thoughts on that. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I feel like it's going to be a tough 
sell to people who like like we like you mentioned Dan Levitar a couple of episodes ago or an episode ago. Yeah. And um you know, I feel like those kind of wounds are just not gonna heal. People just aren't gonna be able to get over certain things. Just like, you know, there's old wounds where we're from we're from Alabama, there's probably old wounds that our parents and grandparents may have uh that they may not get over. Uh, and then that's and then those are and those are things that are okay because it's okay not to forget those things as part of history, but it's also not okay not to move forward if 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 there's real change to be made if if there's progress to be made there's no reason to continue an embargo and continue a you know a, a silent war whatever you want to call it if Cuba is ready to step into the 21st century and do things in a progressive way. Now, we have no idea of if, if these things are going to happen. I guess we will see uh, going forward. Like you said, it, it is the same regime. It is the Castro regime, so that gives some people pause. Certainly, I, I do I do think that people don't change as much as we'd like them to, but, you know, it's, it's one of those things that let's see it play out. I think right now to label it a success or a mistake is just not giving enough time. I mean, if it ends up being a great success, people will say, oh, it was, it was you know, a great idea. If it ends up being a fair, people will say this is the wrong thing. But you're not going to know if you don't try it. So I do give the president credit for this, for putting one foot forward and trying. But what I'd like to see is if over some period of time Cuba has not met the demands the U.S. has you know, required or whatever in re, in re uh, igniting this relationship that they would pull back and reinstate maybe what they were doing, saying, hey, we, we gave you a chance, you didn't want to play ball, and now we're going back to how it was. I want to make sure that we're not just bending over, you know, for no reason uh, with, without, you know, some reciprocation, so to speak. The last um, documented lynching is actually in our hometown, Frank Mobile, Alabama, in 1981. And for a lot of people, you know, the, the Ku Klux Klan and things of that nature, they represent a lot of pain for um, some people that, you know, actually lived through the civil rights era and, you know, Jim Crow and, and just that, you know, we still have racism today, but I think we all can agree it's nothing like, you know, the 50s and 60s. So I think for some, for some, it would be the equivalent of, a president welcoming David Duke to the White House and treating him to dinner and, and going to a baseball game with him. Again, for some, it would be the equivalent of that. It would be a slap in the face. So I get, you know, the Cubans. You mentioned Dan Levitard. He said his mother can't even, she can't even talk about it. Like, he, you know, he works for ESPN. The interview with your sister, I mentioned how ESPN was down there. He actually wanted to go down there because he didn't experience what his mother experienced. But she adamantly asked him not to, and by her wishes, he chose not to. So I just want people to be, you know, empathetic of the pain of some and just, you know, not look at it in one one way. You ready to get into some beef, man? Hey, we, we live for beef, right? <laughs> so as you, as some of you know, me and Frank, we uh, we live in what, what they call the Baltimore-Washington area. Um, Baltimore is a good, I would say, maybe 45 minutes up the road from Washington, D.C. They are big on seafood as far as, like, you know, steamed crabs, crab cakes, what have you. And as many of you know, me and Frank are also from Mobile, Alabama, which is on the Gulf Coast. And we, we too, are also big into, you know, shrimp and, and fish and seafood. The beef that is brewing is people in the Baltimore, Washington area feel like the Gulf Coast people don't do seafood right. One example is they say, you know, people in the Gulf Coast, they boil their crabs and they take all the flavor out when they really should steam them. And people in the Gulf Coast, the ones that I know that have visited up here, they say the seafood is eh, it's all right, but it's nothing compared to, you know, the Gulf Coast. Being from Mobile, Alabama, Frank, and living up here in this area, what say you, brother? I mean, this is a difficult position to be in. Um, and I can I can actually get – I'm trying to figure out how to weasel my way out of this. You know, it's, a it's a political show, so let me see how I can play both sides. So, you know we have Mobile listeners and we have some D.C. area. Yes, um, yes, we do. Um, 
I will say this for Maryland. I don't believe this is not a knock on any place in the Gulf Coast, but Maryland Maryland crab is 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 really really good. It's really tough to beat. Uh, the crab cakes up here, I feel like are superior to anywhere that I've I've had. The Maryland crab to me is is a winner. Now, if you're talking about crawfish or something else, you know, then then we're going down a different road. So I really think if you're talking if you're talking about like going down to my total seafood you know, menu or just crab, I mean, it's, it's kind of a difficult uh, thing to me. Now, one, one other thing, I'll, a caveat I'll throw out there is growing up in, in Mobile, unfortunately, I didn't eat as much seafood as I wanted to because my dad is highly allergic to seafood, so we didn't have it in the house nearly as often as, as I would like. My mom's a big seafood person, and, and obviously um, I wasn't, you know, able to go out that often as a child and eat it. So I've had a lot more seafood in Maryland than I've had in, in Alabama, believe it or not, and just for the length of time lived up here as well. So if you ask me who I'm going to vote for, I mean, I'm going to go with where I live right now because I live there and it's, it's good. But, you know, I, if you if you want somebody to argue me down about Mobile having the best seafood, I, I probably would say okay. But as long as you don't bring crab into the equation, I'd probably say okay. But the crab here is, is to me, superior to anywhere I've, I've had it. My my answer is somewhat similar, and I have a, a disclaimer to throw out there. For one thing, um, you know, g- growing up in, in Mobile, um, I, I well, I did eat a lot of seafood, but a lot of times, you know, as I've gotten older, I realized that wasn't great seafood, but a lot of times, you know, growing up, I'm not saying we were poor, but put it like this, eating at Red Lobster was considered a, a fancy restaurant growing up. So... <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of like my introduction to, to seafood for the most part. And I moved up here when I was like 22 or 23 and really started, you know, eating quality seafood. But I got to agree with you. I think if you're talking about crab, and especially crab cakes, you know, I, I, I'm i sorry, I haven't had a great crab cake in the Gulf Coast. So if you're talking about crab and crab cakes, you know, to be fair, and don't be mad at us Mobile listeners, but, I got to go with, you know, Maryland. Got to. But like you say, man, with everything else, like, you know, when I go home, my mom goes to, uh, she likes to go to Mud Bugs for me and get the uh, the steamed shrimp. That's great. You can't, it's hard to really find that up here. Also, what's been hard to find up here for me is great gumbo. Like, mm. when it comes to gumbo and the etouffees and mm. shrimp creole and things of that nature, that's Gulf Coast hands down to me. That's you know okay. they they don't they don't touch it they you know Baltimore DC they don't touch it but I'm gonna you know copy off your answer if we talk about crabs we'll go with Baltimore Washington pretty much everything else um, fish you, you know I guess it, that's a tie but when it comes I think it depends on where it's prepared I want to jump in on the fish I think honestly it depends <laughs> on what type of fish and how it's yeah. prepared. Because you're talking about some fried fish, okay, let's let's just, I mean, it is what it is, Gulf Coast, you know. But <laughs> the rock the rockfish up here is, 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 that's one of my favorite fish. It's probably my favorite fish up here is rockfish. And I don't think that they even have that in, on the Gulf Coast. Not saying that they should, I think, it's, I think it's based on where the fish actually is. But I would say it really depends on what kind of fish you're talking about and maybe how it's prepared. Um, but, I, you know, I, again, I'm open. We we would definitely want to hear your opinion on these different things because it's it's an exciting debate. It's it's yeah. even more controversial than the top five to me because, you know, it's it's exciting. It's good. And, and look, my my wife, she you know she likes to go to Winslow's when we go to Automobile because they have those charbroil oysters, and that's hard to find up here as well. I actually finally found a restaurant up here that we may try, and maybe she can compare. So. I guess final answer, if we're talking about seafood, the totality of it, sorry, Baltimore, Washington, I got to go with my roots. I got to go with Gulf Coast. But you guys have crabs, crab cakes, hands down. So we want you, like you said, we want you to weigh in on that as well, as well as the top five that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. Just go to uh, our Facebook page, Politically Entertaining, or go to our website, politicallyentertaining.com. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, The Vocal Minority, D-A-V-O-C-A-L, Minority. And we're also on Instagram, Politically Entertaining. And we're going to try to have a YouTube channel coming soon as well. Uh, I'm going to let my man Frank 
take us out. I just want to thank you guys again for joining us. Again, thanks to all the listeners out there. It's because of you the show is possible. Uh, we Every week we're trying to just bring you new information in this election season. Again, it's very important to vote. doesn't matter who you vote for. Make sure you go out and vote. Make sure you're an informed voter. That's most important. Make sure you're voting. Uh, and make sure you know who everybody who's on the ballot. I know sometimes you get caught up in, oh, who's running for president. But, more, you know, Byron and I said this many times. More often than not, your local elections are going to affect your life on a, on a daily basis. So you know who these know who these office um, who's running for office locally and, and research them and, and make an informed vote. That's very important. So we just want to uh, keep that with you. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politic Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.